Well, Doug always reminds us when he is um, praying, whether it's in that little room over there or whether he comes up here, it's always a beautiful morning, and it is indeed a beautiful morning outside. Um, I want to read a passage to you from Isaiah 40. You don't have to turn there. Uh, 28 through 31. It'll be familiar to many, if not most of you. In verse 28, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I want to take a small amount of liberty with this verse this morning. I want to focus on the first half of verse 31, which says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Have you ever seen an eagle in the wild? They're truly majestic birds. Uh, to see these large birds soaring with seemingly effortless uh, majesty is, is stunning. They glide for hours with very little momentum of their, very little movement of their wings. Uh, can you imagine having the experience of being hundreds or even thousands of feet in the air and looking down and only apparently exerting the effort of stretching your wings out. One might wonder that these are somehow magic creatures, uh, that somehow they're able to defy the very law of physics. But it turns out that they have a secret. The energy that keeps these birds aloft comes from, not themselves, but it comes from outside of themselves. What these birds know is that there are thermals. As air heats up close to the ground, it rises. We see this every time we have a campfire or we drive past a chimney and we see smoke pouring out the top. That's the effect of what happens when air is heated. It becomes less dense than the surrounding air, and it goes upward. And so what these eagles know is that in cases where the air is moving upward, all they have to do is get in that thermal or get in that moving air, and they'll be carried higher and higher and higher. Turns out that eagles are capable of soaring several miles up into the air. It's amazing. Some years ago, I was sent on a teaching assignment to uh, the island of Oahu, which is part of the Hawaiian chain. And while there, I had the privilege of flying a sailplane, a glider, uh, from an old World War II airbase uh, up on the northern shore of the island. Now, the north shore is where these big surfing events happen. And so for thousands of miles of open ocean, the wind blows and stirs up these waves. And uh, the winds in that area are actually called the trade winds. Now, we don't talk about the trade winds much because we're past the days of uh, sailing vessels, but the trade winds were very important uh, at one time in the movement of sailing ships. So the trade winds blow across this huge expanse of water, 
And uh, the energy of these waves carries, or, or winds carry waves along. And when these waves come in contact with the shores of Oahu, there are times when uh, the waves mound up and they are spectacular. A few hundred yards on shore is a series of ridges. And the reason this World War II airbase existed was because of the combination of these trade winds blowing constantly and the need to lift very heavy, uh, particularly bomber aircraft, is a perfect combination. Aircraft could head out into these winds and immediately get lift and take off, uh, whereas it would have taken uh, much, much longer runways to get them alo aloft otherwise. Well, in a sailplane, as this wind comes across and hits this ridge, it's directed straight up. And the experience of being in a sailplane, flying along that ridge, and those uplifting currents is amazing. It feels as if you could fly forever. And if you've ever experienced a sailplane, a glider, uh, you know it's quiet inside. And so to run along that ridge feeling the energy that is uh, lofting you up um, by these winds that are being redirected by striking the cliffs below you must be something like what these eagles and hawks feel when they're soaring in the heights. Why am I talking about birds this morning and sailplanes? Well, it's because I hope that our time in Luke has carried you to new heights in your walk with Christ. I hope that the Holy Spirit is at work in each one of us in here as we spend time in this amazing gospel and that our eyes are being opened to things, to a calling that we had not heard as clearly before uh, as we did before spending the amount of time in this gospel that we're, we're currently spending. Um, I know that that has been the case for me. These past few years have been transformative, quite frankly, in my life. Um, before the Lord, I know I can stand here this morning and tell you that my affections for Christ um, are different than they were just a few short years ago. I see my Savior in a new and amazing and exciting light. And I hope that in the Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that is happening to you too. I hope that the messages that Pat and Brian and James and Levi and Pat and Doug and Dave have diligently labored to bring to us have enlarged your faith in Jesus. And I hope you have a growing awareness that there's a war raging around us and we must wear the uniform of one side or the other. Matt has particularly made it abundantly clear um, there's no middle ground in this war. There is no neutrality. There is no Swiss citizenship where we can stand off to the side and wait and see what happens. I hope that Jesus occupies more of your thoughts today than when we first started this text. And I hope you are personally taking time to read the text for yourself. 
While the messages have been rich, I hope that the Holy Spirit is taking you even deeper into the depths of this gospel um, and that you're seeing more of our matchless Savior as you spend time in the book of Luke. I particularly hope that you're not bored and distracted by this life-giving, soul-saving gospel of the kingdom of God being preached to you. I hope that if and when the Holy Spirit awakens you to truth, that you do not neglect to act. God is not interested in wasting your time. He certainly is not wasting his. There's a reason why he has put you here in this place at this time. As Jesus said in Luke 8, 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear and heed my words. So that's my hope for us. Um, that's my exhortation um, to us as we continue this journey through the book of Luke. Um, be attentive. This is a precious, important time. Um, don't become dull of hearing. Um, don't be bored. Um, don't be distracted. But if the Lord has given you ears to hear, then I hope you hear and I hope you heed God's word. So let's do that right now. Let's attend to God's word. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke 13, we're going to begin in verse 10. I'm going to read through the full passage. We'll be reading 10 verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work might be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So let's dig into this passage a little bit. So over the, as I said a moment ago, over these past few years, Luke has been central to much of my personal study. Um, prior to us beginning our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, I have a special uh, honor. I had the special honor of spending a year leading a Sunday school class right over on that side of the room um, through another book Luke wrote, uh, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> You've been reminded many times of Luke's preface to this Gospel uh, that he wrote it and the book of Acts in a, uh, for a person named Theophilus. 
Theophilus is an interesting name. Uh, we don't know much about him, and we don't know precisely what his relationship was with Luke. He appears to have been uh, a, a, a patron of Luke, somebody who probably funded a lot of the work that Luke did. Um, but his name means friend of God. It's very interesting to me. Luke's intent was to compile an accurate record of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And that's what we have in this gospel, and that's what Luke wrote about, and that's what we're studying together today. In part two of Luke's work, the book of Acts, he recorded what Jesus continued to do uh, after he was taken up. The work that Jesus began is now, in the book of Acts, being continued um, by Holy Spirit-filled believers. That's us. That's the church. And so when you put these two books together, you have a pretty concise picture of the ministry of Christ and the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ through the church until the end of this age and until he returns. You may not know this, but Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. Does that surprise you? It did me. Um, he wrote approximately 27% of your New Testament. Paul trailed behind at 23%, and John behind Paul. Uh, Luke was a physician. He was almost certainly Gentile. We do not know when or how he came to faith in Christ, but we do know that at some point he became a companion and a co-worker with Paul. Those of you who were in the Acts class um, saw the point in the uh, book where the personal pronoun changed to we. So there was a point in the book of Acts where Luke was now a participant in what was being recorded. I have added Luke to my list of people I can't wait to meet and talk to one day. I have some questions for Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapters 9 through 19, Luke has a large assembly, uh, assemblage of stories. These are kind of travel stories. Um, and Luke records the event that we're going to look at today without naming its location or naming any of the people other than Jesus that are in the story. We don't know much of Jesus' day on, on this event. Um, we don't know how much of the day this event consumed. Um, what we do know is that it was a Sabbath, and it was in a synagogue. By now, that setting should be sounding a little bit familiar to us. Historians calculate that Jesus' public ministry was minimally two years long um, because there are three Passovers listed, um, and maybe as much as three and a half years. But for the sake of our discussion, let's just assume it was three years. Well, that's 1,095 days in three years. Of those 1,095 days, there would have been at least 156 Sabbaths. There's a lot of Sabbaths. We've heard about a few of them. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the synagogue in Nazareth on a Sabbath in his hometown. And this is what he said in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is a very special moment. It happened in a synagogue. It happened on the Sabbath. And it's relevant to our passage today. It's very relevant. Does anybody remember what the response was to that event I just read? You remember how his homeboys responded? This too isn't uncommon. Uh, they were offended by his words and they dragged him out to toss him off a cliff. Later, in Luke 6, Jesus is walking with his disciples on the Sabbath, and they were hungry. So the text says that they were walking through some grain fields, and some of them were taking some of the clusters of grain and rubbing it between their hands to break open uh, the kernels, and then they were eating of them. Well, some Pharisees called Jesus out for allowing them to, to perform work on the Sabbath. Jesus refers them back to David and to uh, events that happened in David's life. Um, but the challenge of this doing work on the Sabbath um, starts very early in the gospel. And this passage, today's passage, is another of those 156 or so Sabbaths in which Jesus' actions offended the religious leaders of the day. So in our passage today, it was Sabbath, it was in a synagogue, and Jesus was teaching in that location on that day. And just consider that statement for just a moment. Jesus was teaching. Jesus, the eternal God, was in a synagogue. He was there. It was the Sabbath, and he was teaching. What would it be worth to you today, sitting here, if you could be transported back in time and present when Jesus was teaching in person? I simply can't imagine what that would be like. Sadly, today, you're stuck with me up here. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But what an amazing thing to think of being present when Jesus, the Son of God, the uh, creator of all things, is teaching in your presence. And as Jesus was teaching, he spotted a woman. The text, does tells, uh, the text tells us this woman was bent double. Um, there are depictions, you can find them with a simple YouTube search um, uh, of artist interpretations of what this looked like. Uh, if you poke around, you can even see some, um, some photographs, modern photographs of people who are just bent double. Um, it's, it's a pitiful thing to see in a pitiful condition to live with. Um, she had been that way for 18 long, distressing years. 18 years. Um, these babies that uh, have been born recently will be graduating from high school in that period of time. It's a very long time. Her life was almost certainly defined by her condition. She was bent double. She could not straighten up. Her condition would have been painful. It would have caused her embarrassment and would have made most social interactions awkward. It would have limited her ability to contribute to just normal daily life. It would have cost, uh, it would have been, um, sorry, hygiene may have even been challenging to her. Clothing would not have fit well. Prospects for marriage and children, while not cited in the passage, uh, were likely unavailable to her. She would have been a bit of a social outcast, probably viewed by many as responsible for her own condition. And just reference Brian's uh, message from last week on that matter. 
Many would have viewed her as cursed by God because of her condition. And she may have even felt that way herself. Now, she probably would have lived close to the synagogue um, within, for her, walking distance. Um, she would have been familiar, perhaps even known by name, by people in the synagogue. For 18 years, she would have been described by people in the community by her condition. They would have referred to her as that woman who is bent over. But on this day, on this Sabbath, she was at the synagogue where Jesus was teaching. The text does not tell us if she was being attentive to Jesus or if his teaching was affecting her in any way. Whether she was attentive or not does not really matter. Jesus was attended to her. Jesus saw her and called her to himself. Now, I once, years ago, attended a Benny Hinn faith healing circus event. Um, I saw plenty of showmanship that evening. I saw many, many people who desperately needed help and healing. I saw people in wheelchairs. I saw people on rolling gurneys. Um, I heard a lot of shouting and a lot of commands issued in the name of Jesus. I saw musicians. I saw well-dressed people up on stage, fancy lights, entertaining antics. And I was even given an opportunity to give them my money. What I did not see that evening was tender compassion. Neither did I see the deformed healed. And I did not see what Jesus did on that Sabbath morning in that synagogue. Jesus called her over to himself. She came, and he declared her freed from her disability. Imagine that moment as this crippled, bent-over woman stood before him, there must have been a moment of incredulity in the synagogue. What a preposterous statement Jesus had just made. You are freed from your disability. Jesus was telling this bent-over woman that she was no longer bound by this disability. And in that moment, she would have still been bent over. But then, Jesus placed his hands on her, and at the touch of the great physician, she, for the first time in 18 years, straightened up and stood upright before her Lord. No more shame, no more pain, no more evil spirit bowing her down with its power. She was no longer a captive. Jesus had set her free with a word and a touch. Church, that's our Jesus. That is the God that we worship. Our Jesus proclaims good news to the poor. Our Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives. Our Jesus gives sight to the blind. Our Jesus sets free those who are oppressed. Is such a one not worthy of our worship? Does he not deserve our praise? Ought we not be to, to, to be devoted to him? Is he not the king that we long for? Well, this dear woman thought so. What was her immediate response? She glorified God. This daughter of Abraham glorified God. God had esteemed her helpless estate and had compassion on her affliction. He witnessed the enemy's wicked abuse of her. He had mercy on her. He loved her. 
And in her misery, he sent his son to her on that Sabbath in that synagogue. And God's grace was poured out on her. And she stood up and glorified God. If your heart's not moved by this story, you need Jesus to touch you as much as this woman did. Now, this would be a very lovely story if it was only about this woman and Jesus. It would be so cool just to stop right here. But alas, there were others in that synagogue on that Sabbath. The ruler of the synagogue was one of those present. Now, this is not the first time in our study of Luke that we've encountered a ruler of a synagogue. If you remember back in chapter 6, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, and his daughter was sick. And so Jairus calls for Jesus to come and to heal his daughter, and Jesus is delayed. As he's on his way, as he's responding to this request, he's delayed by a woman who has or had an issue of blood that had plagued her for years. And by the time that Jesus resumes his journey to Jairus' house, the message comes that don't bother the master. Your daughter, your 12-year-old daughter is dead. And Jesus goes to her and he's mocked when he says she is not dead, she is only asleep. And then he raises her back up and puts her in the arms of her parents. So we've encountered synagogue rulers before. Now this particular synagogue ruler stood in the presence of a miracle. He surely knew this woman. Her affliction was clear, it was obvious to him. There's no mystery there. And he would not have personally wanted to change places with her. She was disabled, and in his heart, he had already categorized and placed this woman in a category uh, of irrelevancy. So in her disability, he sees her shuffling about. She's unsightly. Uh, she's a constant reminder of human limitations. And the text tells us her torment was caused by an evil spirit. And when she entered the synagogue, the evil spirit who bowed her over came into that synagogue with her. Not only was it afflicting her, but those in the synagogue, the religious leaders, were powerless to rescue this woman from her torment or to cast this evil spirit out of their midst. With his own eyes, the synagogue leader witnessed a moment for which he should have stood amazed and in awe. He is the leader of that synagogue. As he beholds a member of his synagogue standing upright, healed, freed from Satan, and glorifying God, certainly he should have joined in with joy. But he doesn't. He stands in the very presence of godly compassion, but only sees a broken rule. Instead of joy, he feels anger. 
Verse 14 says, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come in on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. He reduced God's miraculous act of mercy, grace, and love for this woman to illegal labor. What's he basing his indignation on? Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the traveler who is within your uh, gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice that in the text, the synagogue uh, ruler addressed the people. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't address Jesus? Clearly, Jesus was the one who provoked his, his indignation. Um, in his response, this man takes on the role that Jesus had been performing at the start of this passage. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue that day. Now the ruler of the synagogue is going to teach the crowd. He's teaching them that what, just, what they just witnessed was an offense to God because it broke God's rule. Was he right? Is breaking God's law ever justified? Does God permit us to sin if we're doing it for the right reasons? I don't know about you guys, but I've stood at that crossroad a time or two in my life where I was pondering doing something that I wasn't confused about. I know it was sin, and yet I was weighing whether or not it was okay to sin if it served some good purpose. So was Jesus in this moment, the hypocrite in this situation? Was he failing to honor the Sabbath by healing this woman? And Jesus' response tells the tale. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Jesus pointed to the reality of how the Sabbath was observed. God gave the Sabbath as a rest, not as a burden. He intended as a day in which people were uh, reprieved from endless toil. Do you realize that the rest of the non-Jewish world had no such concept at that time? If you were not in the top 2 or 3% of society, you worked seven days a week, week after week, year after year. It was a kind and good God who gave us a reprieve from constant and oppressive toil. The Romans and the Greeks thought the Jews were lazy because they didn't labor seven days a week. And the very people who benefited from this law, those who were given rest, had entangled it with endless rules. Instead of receiving the merciful rest God intended, 
They made rules that turned the Sabbath into a day of stress. But even in their seal to preserve the Sabbath, they had exceptions. They could lead their beasts to water. And that is why Jesus immediately called this man and those who agreed with him hypocrites. They had no problem caring for their beast on a Sabbath, but, but would not extend that same concern for a daughter of Abraham. Her suffering on the Sabbath was of less concern to them than the thirst of an ox. In verse 16, the text says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Satan had bound this poor woman for 18 long, painful years. Jesus, with a word and a touch, loosed the cruel bonds that held her captive. This daughter of Abraham, the sister of those in that synagogue that morning, had been led not to water, but to freedom from enslavement. She was no longer forced into bowing by Satan, but now stood unbent, glorifying her Redeemer. What kind of heart finds indignation and wrath in the presence of this kind of mercy and love? Well, the text tells us the answer. The kind of heart that is provoked to anger by the kindness of the Lord is the heart of a hypocrite. Jesus has labeled some of the religious leaders in Israel hypocrites. We've seen it in previous verses. It is not a compliment. These were those who did not know the God they professed to speak for. If you want to see a hypocrite with your own eyes, look for someone who is self-righteous and full of judgment toward others. They do not tend to scrutinize themselves because it is clear to them that they are so much better than the sinners that surround them that they have no need for introspection. The identifying traits are smugness and anger. In their minds, both these traits are justified. Look at the state of the world. Look at those people. Look at that person over there. Can you believe? These are the attitudes of the hypocrite. They are so assured of their worth that they do not concern themselves with eternity. They, in their minds, are a shoe-in for membership in heaven. But Jesus tells us that in their arrogance, not only do they not enter God's kingdom, they hinder others from entering. The heart of the hypocrite in that place, in that morning, when faced with God's salvation of this woman, was anger. In verse 17, And as he said these things, all the adversaries, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Finally, we have an appropriate response from these people. Shame. The adversaries of Jesus finally saw their hearts on display. They cared more for their beast than for a daughter of Abraham. For a moment, they stood at a crossroad. Jesus had exposed the evil in their hearts, and Jesus had exposed it in a way, uh, had exposed the way in which Satan had bound not her, but them. They were not stooped over, but their hearts were stony, dry, and dead. 
Their hearts needed to be loosed and led to the water of life. And he was standing right in front of them. Jesus gave them the gift of shame. It was a moment when their hearts were pliable. It was a moment to repent. It was a moment to turn to Jesus. And it's in those moments that life hangs in the balance, really, for all of us. The text does not tell us if any of the adversaries repented. I hope at least one did. We can ask what happened to the characters in this story in the future, uh, in eternity. I, for one, cannot wait to hear the rest of the story. This woman has also <laughs> been added to my list. I have so many questions. What about those who rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him? I don't know. The text doesn't say more than that they rejoiced at the works of Jesus. Did they become disciples? Did they follow him? Did some of them enjoy the show and then get back to real life? Um, were they like the crowds at a Benny Hinn healing circus um, who enjoyed the show and will stand in line to buy tickets for the next one? What I do know is this. The very same Jesus who taught in that synagogue on that particular Sabbath is alive this morning and present with us in this room. He himself tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Jesus is here in this place on this Lord's Day this morning. The Spirit of Jesus is present here today and is teaching us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear and heed my words. Has the enemy bound you? Are you entangled in sin? Are you wounded by the past? Are you angry at those who have betrayed you and hurt you? Do you feel abandoned and alone? Do you feel like an outcast, a misfit, like a foreign, um, foreigner even among those you know best? Do you sense the peril this morning of dying in your sins? Do you dread the possibility that you may actually stand before a holy God one day? Does your own inevitable appointment with death fill you with dread? As the fog of sleep clears in the morning, does your heart fill with, fill with joy and hope for the new day? Or do you want to bury yourself in your covers because you hate the life you live? Are you desperately trying to find a meaningful identity? Are you turning to the culture, its music, its styles, its trends, its art, only to discover that the culture is a restless beast that feeds on the desires of people? Do you experience none of these things because you're confident that God has perfectly pleased with you because you strive and succeed at not being like other people? Whoever you are, whatever your problems, Jesus, is calling you to turn from your own efforts and to trust him. His mercy, his grace are freely offered to those who will come to him. 
The price has already been paid. And if you're hearing my words right now, then you're still alive. That means that it's not too late to turn to Jesus. Do it today. Do it now. And live free. And live an abundant, joyful life. Live in the certainty that one day when you stand before a holy God, you won't stand on the basis of your own merit, but you will be clothed in the righteousness of another. So I pray this morning that the Lord would use this simple story. It's not hard to get our heads around uh, what happened in the story. <clears throat> and that even this very day, even as we sit here in this room for these next few minutes, that you will consider Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, and through Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen.